So last week, we wrestled with this idea that the signs and miracles that Jesus performed throughout the course of his ministry, they were often used to reveal the unbelief of those who were following him. It wasn't that they didn't believe that the signs were being done. If you remember, they ate their fill of the loaves, but they were unable to see or understand where or to whom the signs were pointing, right? They didn't get it. The people wanted something from Jesus that he simply wasn't offering, and because he wasn't giving the people what they wanted, last week we saw that many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And so Jesus was left with, after feeding his thousands of hungry followers in the wilderness, the twelve. And one of those 12, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, he described as a devil because he was going to betray him. So in all reality, he was left with just 11. To give us some context, chapter 7 probably takes place about six months after chapter 6. Story picks up with Jesus back in his hometown of Galilee, and we find him hanging out with his brothers who are urging him to go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booths. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 7. We are covering the entire chapter this morning, which means we're probably not going to look at every single verse. Uh, We're definitely not going to look at every single verse, but we're going to just walk our way through the argument and see how it lands for us in our world and how it can challenge us to walk more closely with our Lord. And so verses 1 through 2 starts like this. After this... Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feasts of booths was at hand. And so the last time Jesus was in Judea, he healed a man on the Sabbath. And he claimed that God was his father. And this didn't go over too well. If you remember, they wanted to kill him. And apparently, they're still not happy about it. The text says that the Feast of Booths was at hand, or the Feast of Tabernacles, and and what this was is it's, it's the last of the fall festivals, and it was a time where the people thanked God for his provision, prayed for his continued faithfulness, and remembered the years their ancestors spent in the wilderness, living in temporary homes or tents or booths. But it was also a time where the people would look forward. The feast lasted for eight days, and some of the ways they would celebrate would be through these water-pouring and lamp-lighting ceremonies which took place in the temple. And this was drawn specifically from the words of the prophet Zechariah, who said in chapter 14, verses 7 through 8, And there shall be a a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. In other words, the Feast of Booths was a time where the people would anticipate the coming age of the Messiah. And in the minds of those present during Jesus' time, liberation from Rome, right? Liberation from Rome. That's been a common theme as we've been working our way through the passage, as we've been working our way through the book. That, that the people that Jesus is interacting with, their whole hope when Messiah rolls in is that they would be freed from Roman occupation. Which isn't crazy, right? 
it's not crazy. As we look throughout history, we've never really experienced that sort of thing. And, and if, if there are people in this room who, who have come from other countries where they have experienced that sort of oppression in a government, like most of us in this room don't have a category for that. And so it's very easy for us to point our fingers at these guys and say, you guys are just a bunch of idiots. Like, I can't believe you don't get it. But we actually don't understand what it's like to live in, in the world that, that these people were living in under the oppression of, of this foreign entity in their own land. Text continues, verses 3 through 5. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Right? His brothers refers to his literal brothers. And if you notice in verse 5, it says that not even his brothers believe in him. In other words, they're in the same category of everybody else. They believe that he can work these miracles and perform these signs, but they don't understand the direction these signs are pointing toward. They want him to go to Judea, to the feast, because that's where the crowds were. The Feast of Booths was one of the three great feasts where tens of thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Now, let's, let's kind of zoom out a little bit, remember where we are contextually. Jesus is back in Galilee. He's at home. He had thousands of followers, and now he's got 11, maybe 12. At least that's what maybe his brothers think. Maybe, maybe they're trying to help him out. Maybe they're trying to give him a few tips on how to grow his business. Maybe in their eyes, he's a failure living back at home with no real prospects. Right? Like, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Whatever it is, though... The point is, they don't get it. They don't understand his mission. They don't understand why he's there. Not even his brothers believed in him. It says this, Jesus said to them in verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus' response is fascinating. He tells them that his time has not yet come, but then he says that their time is always here. He tells them that the world cannot hate them, but that it hates him because he tells them, of their, he tells them that their works are evil. In other words, Jesus is telling his brothers that they're a part of the problem. You just catch that? He's telling his brothers that they're a part of the problem and that the work and timing of what he has to do is not subject to, as one commentator puts it, the counsel of the wicked. See, they thought that Jesus should go to Jerusalem, to Judea, and put on a show, but that's not how he operates. Jesus is from a kingdom that is not of this world, so he does not utilize the ways of this world to extend the hope of his reign. And this is the problem. And it's the problem that has been unfolding throughout the course of the book that those who claim to belong to God, to Yahweh, are taking their cues from the world. This collective group who hates Jesus. That the people of God are taking their cues from the world. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it like this, and I have a slide for this. Jerusalem and its leaders, both official and unofficial, have come to embody the attitudes of the world. 
When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is indeed showing himself to the world, but it is a world turned against the God it continues to outwardly celebrate, a world that doesn't, doesn't want to know of his loving purposes. Right, there's a word in here for us, Redeemer. And we're going to get to it, but let's keep working through the text. Verses 10 through 13, it says this, But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. All right, so Jesus eventually decides to go up to the feast. A decision we can only attribute to some sort of prompting by the Father. But notice that he does not go up publicly but in private. Right? He's not making a scene. D.A. Carson notes that this would have been the last time he was in Galilee before being crucified. The text says that the, the Jews, the religious leaders, were looking for him. It also says that there was much muttering about um, him among the people. The term itself could mean complaining or it could, could just be quiet behind the scenes. I, I think the latter makes more sense of the context because some said he's a good man, while others says, no, he's leading the people astray. The point is that Jesus was the talk of the town. People knew who he was. They remembered his miracles. They remembered his teaching. They probably remembered him turning over tables in the temple. Jesus was not like hiding his ministry, but in this particular set setting, he's not going at it publicly. And the people also know why or know that the religious leaders are still angry with him, which is why no one had the guts to speak openly of him. And so at this point... The tensions are starting to build, right? The way I kind of picture it is, is Jesus is walking through Jerusalem, head down, maybe a hood on, trying to stay out of the spotlight until the middle of the feast. Until the middle of the feast. The text then says that Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Jesus does only what the Father tells him to do, right? Right? We've seen this throughout the course of John's gospel. And so every move he makes is divinely orchestrated. The father wanted him to lay low for a few days, and now the father wants him to go up to the temple and teach. Verse 15 says this, The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will... He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. See, the religious leaders, they can't understand why Jesus had such command over the scriptures. They know he's never studied under anyone of significance, nor has he had any formal training. Other rabbis would identify where they got their teaching from. They would quote other rabbis. They would name drop. But Jesus doesn't do that. But notice what he does do. He says that his teaching is not from himself, but from the one who sent him. And then he does something very similar to what he did to his brothers. Look at what he says. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. In other words... If you belong to God, 
If you believe in the one that you're celebrating at this feast, then you'll believe in me. But if you can't understand what I'm saying, if you still want to kill me, then you have lumped yourself into the category of the world. That's tracking here. It's making sense. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? All of you claim to be of Moses. You go on and on about how much you love his law. This entire feast that you're celebrating is about how God used Moses to lead Israel through the wilderness. Yet none of you keep the law. Yet none of you keep the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Verse 20 says that the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? In other words, like, you're out of your mind, bro. Chill out. Like, relax. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Right? If you remember... They wanted to kill Jesus because the last time he was in Jerusalem, he healed a man on the Sabbath. The law states that when a male child is born, they are to be circumcised on the eighth day. And if that eighth day falls on a Sabbath, they are still to perform the ceremony. And so the point that Jesus is making is that if it is okay and right to perform a circumcision on the Sabbath, then how much more right... Is it to perform an act of love and mercy on somebody, even if it happens to be on the Sabbath? Right? There's a hierarchy of law, if you will. Things that, that, that the Jewish people were to submit to versus when, when there was a, a conflict between two statutes, there was a hierarchy. And, 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 and needs and mercy, they kind of always trump the, the other things. And here's the problem. This is, this is the problem. The religious leaders don't understand who God is. They've allowed the particulars of this theological system to dictate how they live their lives and how the people under their care ought to live their lives rather than the big picture of God's love, mercy, and compassion. And in so doing, because they were really, really good at the particulars, they grew pretty impressed with themselves. Similar to maybe some of us who who really can't remember what life was like before knowing Jesus. Or those of us who always just naturally did the right thing. Oh, I hate those people. Right? And I bet there's a few of you in this room. My wife's one of them. We were talking about it. This, she just always, just always did the right thing. Always did the right thing. Right? I don't hate her. <laughs> my father-in-law's here. I love my wife. But there's something wrong with this sort of thinking. In fact, this sort of thinking that postures itself in a position of superior, superiority, that views any sort of contrary thought as less than or immoral, it's a problem. And that's what's going on in, in this passage here. That's what's starting to, to start to bubble up a little bit. I want to read that quote from N.T. Wright again. Jerusalem, 
and its leaders, both official and unofficial, have come to embody the attitudes of the world. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he is indeed showing himself to the world, but it is a world turned against the God it continues to outwardly celebrate, a world that doesn't want to know of his loving purposes. Jesus has just lumped the so-called people of God into the category of the world. Why? Because this sort of arrogant and self-righteous thinking and practice is exactly how the world functions. It's exactly how the world functions. And, and you know what's fascinating to me? The passage says a little bit earlier on that the reason why the world hates Jesus is because he testifies that their works are evil. He tells them that what you're doing is evil. And I think for all of us, it's so easy for us to have a category of the world that is, that is one that is filled with debauchery, one that is filled with, with all sorts of confusion and chaos. But that's not the world that Jesus is referring to in this passage. That's not the problem he has right now. He has those problems, but that's not the one he's talking about right now. He's talking about the so-called people of God, the religious folk. And he's saying, you hate me because I tell you that your works are evil. And he's lumping them into the category of the world. And so what happens when the people of God take their cues from the world and culture that surrounds us? Now, we can take the easy way out here. And most of us are tempted to do so. We can talk about how music in the church sounds more like a rock concert than a worship service. Or maybe we don't like how informal Sunday mornings have become. But I don't think that's really the point the text is getting at. Maybe it's a moral thing. We could talk about how divorce rates in the church look similar to the surrounding world. I read a stat from 2019 that 58% of white evangelicals believe cohabitating is acceptable if a couple plans to marry. And another stat from 2015 saying that roughly half of evangelical Protestants in the millennial generation say homosexuality should be accepted by society. These statistics are problematic, and some of you might even be thinking, like, whoa, that's bad. We need to do better at marriage, and we need to sharpen our sexual ethics, but I'm not convinced that this is what Jesus is referring to when he lumps the so-called people of God into the category of the world. Remember, the world hates him because he testifies about it that their works are evil. The religious leaders would have the same problems we have with the stats I read, yet they hate Jesus. They want him dead. And so, therefore, they are worldly, doing evil. But what is the evil they're doing? What I believe is going on here has more to do with the parable of the prodigal son than it does with the obvious immorality that has found its way into the church. What is obvious immorality? The sins that we like to point out in others that make us forget about the hidden decay wreaking havoc in our own hearts. The obvious immorality. 
Now, please do not hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that divorce doesn't matter, nor am I saying that sexual activity outside the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman is okay. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, and I'm saying it because I believe this is where Jesus spends most of his time on the attack, is that the larger problem that we face as the people of God is how we posture ourselves toward those who struggle with sin, who have maybe sinned in ways that are so beyond anything we've ever imagined or struggled with, how we postured ourselves toward those who maybe think differently than we do. Maybe they claim to be a follower of Jesus, but their take on economics or American politics makes us uncomfortable. I'm talking about how we posture ourselves toward those who have struggled financially, Maybe we look at them and think that the reason they're in this situation is because they're fools. And to give them any assistance will only enable them. Teach a man to fish while good advice, it's not in the Bible. Maybe it's how we posture ourselves toward any group or tribe that we might disagree with or be appalled by. Maybe there are people in this room who don't like millennials or Gen Z. Maybe you believe that their work ethic, their morals, whatever, is the reason why the world is in such a mess. If you're wondering, I'm painting with very broad brushstrokes right now. The problem with all of this thinking is that it's grounded in a belief that we are, as I said before, in some way morally superior to anyone who is not like us. The younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son was one of those people who we would throw into every single one of those categories. He probably sinned in ways we could never imagine. He wasted all of his money on pleasure, and chances are he would have very different politics from most of the people in this room. But when he came home, when he came home, his father came running. You guys catch that? You understand what's going on? This is so important. This is so important. When he came home, his father came running. And his older brother, his older brother, the one who stayed home, who said and did all the right things, who never disobeyed a single command, he was angry. And he refused to go in and celebrate the return of his brother. Why? Because he believed himself to be superior that there was something in him that made him better than his brother. But the truth of the matter is that both brothers, the younger and the older, they need God's grace. That's the point. That's the point. And so when Jesus points his finger at the worldliness of the people of God, what he's pointing his finger at is the grossness of our self-righteousness and pride the things that keep us from loving the younger brothers of the world, that keep us from moving toward sinners, that keep us from recognizing that we too desperately need God's grace, and that there's absolutely nothing in us that is worth boasting over except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the very thing that is to shape and form who we are, both individually and corporately as the body of Christ. The point, the point, God is not put off by the depths of depravity that we bring to the table, and he is not impressed with our self-righteousness either. He just wants us to come home. He just wants us to come home. 
And so whatever category you might find yourself in, whether you struggle with deep sin, maybe you have thoughts that run through your head that are just utterly horrific. Maybe there's things that you've thought about that that if anyone knew about them, they would run from you as fast as they can. Or maybe you think you're something special because you've never really struggled with obvious immorality. God wants both of us to come home and join the party. He wants both of us to come home. Redeemer, that's, this is so important. We gotta get this as followers of Jesus. We have to wrap our minds around this. If we don't, then we are lumped into the category of the world, like the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Remember, when he says that, that the world hates him because he testifies about their evil works, he's not talking about the debaucherous, obvious sins. He can't be because contextually, he goes right into this conversation with, with the religious leaders. And they're the ones that hate him and want to kill him. And so he has to be talking about something different. And if we zoom out and look at Scripture as a whole, particularly the Gospels, the problem, the major problem that Jesus always has is with the religious leaders. And what is the problem he has with them? He has a problem with them that they are, they are placing demands on the people of God, and they are majoring in the minors, and they are forgetting all about the love, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. And so they hate him. They hate him. But check this out. And we're going to skip down to verse 37. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When we come home, when we throw ourselves onto the person and work of Jesus, he pours out his spirit onto us. He captures our hearts, our imaginations, and he changes us. He turns us, his people, into springs of living water that flow out from our hearts. Living water, the sort that flowed out from the rock in the wilderness, refreshing Israel, giving them life. We become little springs of new creation. You guys tracking here? We become little springs of new creation. And that's the point. The religious leaders were sucking the life out of God's people. They were obsessed with everything except showing off the love and mercy of God. And sadly, way too many of us have done the same. Way too many of us have done the same. Last week, we talked about the necessity of holiness in the life of God's people. Repentance, fighting sin and temptation. This week is similar. Only the sin and temptation that Jesus is coming after is the sin of self-righteousness and pride, which is the sin that has done so much damage to broken people, to young girls who are afraid to tell their parents that they messed up and got pregnant, to those struggling with same-sex attraction but kept silent because they thought they would be kicked out of their house, to those who kept their struggle with pornography to themselves out of fear that the church would judge them instead of helping them. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. This is when the people of God begin to look like the world. 
when we forget about grace and fail to see our own brokenness looking back at us in the eyes of those who struggle. When we fail to see our own brokenness looking back at us in the eyes of those who struggle. That's when we look like the world. That's when we look like the world. This does not mean that Jesus doesn't care about the obvious sins. Next week, we're going to look at an entire passage about an obvious sin. But the things that make him so angry are when people who claim to be his build barriers that prevent others from coming home. And we've done it too much. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we, as in like the people in this church, like that's not my point. Maybe some of us have. I, I know I have throughout my history. I have. But collectively, the evangelical church, we've struggled here. We got a lot of older brothers in our midst that are upset when the younger brother comes home and gets a party. And we got to fight that temptation because all that is is self-righteousness and pride. All that is is worldliness. And then we end up hating God or, or we hate the God of the scriptures. We love the God of our own making. But the God that is laid out for us here in this book the one, who, the one who entered into the mess, the one who, who, who entered so deep into the mess that other people looked at him and said, you're a sinner, you're a, you're a drunkard, you're a glutton, right? Like, like Jesus got so close to sin that people were confused by him, that they thought he was just like the rest. Why? Because they were blinded by their pride and self-righteousness. How often have we been blinded by our pride and self-righteousness? How often have we kept people at arm's length because, because we have this thought that, that, that one bad apple is going to spoil the bunch? When Jesus jumped right into the bucket of bad apples and swam around in it and loved all the bad apples and, and bound up all the bruises and cared for those bad apples. And that's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to go and do likewise. That's good news. And the reason why it's good news is because we too are the bad apples that needed binding. And, and, and those of us who, who maybe have those younger brother sins, right? I was, I was a little bit of a younger brother. And I venture to say there's people in this room who are a little bit of a younger brother. The obvious sins. It was someone who came to me and loved me regardless. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. He's not put off, and he's not impressed. He just wants us to come home. That's it. That's it. That's such good news. That's such good news. Text continues. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They got caught up in the details a little bit. I don't know if you noticed that. 
Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Right? There was division. Jesus is saying all these beautiful things. Jesus is calling people home. He's saying, all of you are thirsty, come. And some of them are like, whoa, this sounds pretty good. And others are like, well, wait a second. He's, he's supposed to come from here and there. And it's just like, you're worried about the details. The Messiah is right in front of you. Just go. Just go. Worried about the particulars. Just come. Because guess what? When we come, he sorts out the particulars. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, like, understand the scriptures. I'm not saying that we shouldn't learn theology. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about holiness. What I'm saying are none of those things are prerequisites for coming. None of them. Not a single bit of it. And so we come. We come. The Holy Spirit sparks new life in us. We are new creations. And then we walk with him. And, 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 and the beautiful thing about this is that, is that the Holy Spirit, like, he knows what he's doing. He convicts people of sin. I don't know if you've known that. I don't know if you've experienced it. Have you ever been convicted of sin? Was it because someone called you a moron? Probably not. Maybe, some, maybe for some it is, but the majority of us, it's still true that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. It's still true. And the Holy Spirit gently moves us along. He moves us along. He convicts us of sin. He shows us where we're wrong. He gives us teachers. He gives us a church to teach us, to show us. It's good news. And what we have to be careful of, because all of us, even myself, who, who was more of a younger brother, we come to faith and then we start to gradually become older brothers, a lot of us. We start to think like, the Holy Spirit's moving too slow. I got to help him. I got... I got to really come down on this person. And God's saying, just to love them, speak truth, love them, love them, love them. Trust that God is the sovereign he claims to be. And that the Holy Spirit truly is the power of the resurrection that indwells his kids. No one laid hands on him. Verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? They're scared. I don't know if you're sensing it. They're angry. Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The religious leaders are seething with anger. They have no category for a man like this. A man who, as we'll see next week, moves toward sinners, allows their mess to get all over him, so much so that he's willing to die for them. And that's the point. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
every single one of us are in the exact same boat, which means that every single one of us needs the exact same grace, the amazing sort of grace that is being offered to us by God himself. It's what is on offer this morning. And it's on offer for all of us. Those of us who have been walking with Jesus for 30, 40, even 50 years, and those of us who might be hearing this message for the first time. And this is the offer. Come to Jesus and drink. Believe in him. Believe in the story of the cross and the resurrection, that through the person and work of Jesus, we can have forgiveness. And as it says in verse 39, we receive the Holy Spirit. And then you know what happens? We become springs of living water, refreshing the world wherever we go. Not condemning it, not beating it down, not running from it, but loving it, lifting it up, and running toward it with the good news of the kingdom that we proclaim in both word and deed. We don't graduate from the gospel. We just don't. We don't graduate from the gospel. We simply dig in deeper and deeper. And that's why we take communion every single week. To remind us of our desperate need for his grace. To remind us. And then to partake of that grace by faith. To judge with right judgment is to look at people and see their humanity their need, and then move toward them with the hope of the kingdom and the good news of the king. And then as we'll see next week, lest you think that Jesus doesn't care about sin, we'll see next week that he commands us to go and sin no more. This is good news. This is such good news. It's the sort of news that every single one of us needs to grab hold of. It breathes life into us. It grants us forgiveness of our sin and enables us to have a relationship with God that will last for eternity. If you don't know this news, if you don't know this Savior, today is the day of salvation. That's what the scripture tells us. Please, come talk to me. I'll stand at a distance so you don't catch whatever my son has. I'm happy to do that. Or talk to one of our elders. Tim is here. Seski's here. You can talk to them. You could talk to any one of our prayer team. Prayer team, raise your hands if you're in the room. You can talk to anyone on the prayer team. Don't leave here, one, thinking you have it all together, or two, thinking that what you've done, Jesus will never forgive you for. Because those are both false statements. God loves you, and he wants you to come to him. All who are thirsty, come and drink. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love you with all of our hearts, and Lord, we truly do thank you for your grace. It is amazing, it is good, and it's what we need, Father. It's what we need to save us, and it's what we need to live by. And it's what we need to demonstrate to the world around us, Father. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that one day we will see you face to face with unveiled faces. We will behold you, Lord God. We long for that day, 
In the meantime, help us to live in a manner that reflects who you are to a watching world so that others might catch a glimpse of who you are and come to the party, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.